Welcome to the bookcase. I am Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson, her father. <laughs> and she's in a giggly mood today. You'll just have to put up with it. I am. I'm going to be a little giggly today. I'm a bit punchy. It's probably because I have a lot of, I have a bunch of schoolwork due today. So there's been a lot of late nights. So my apologies if I sound a little punchy. We're really excited. I about don't think anyone cares, Kate. No one cares. No <laughs> one cares. Anyway, it's the world's smallest violin. Anyway, today we're really excited about our author. It's Elizabeth Stroud, Pulitzer Prize winning Elizabeth Stroud. Who's releasing the third book in her Lucy Barton series? The first one was My Name is Lucy Barton. The second one, which has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize, which I'm really excited about, is O. William. But she's also written Olive Kittredge, which, you know, won a Pulitzer, nothing to sneeze out there. She wrote Olive again. She she has quite a canon. And I love Lucy by the Sea. It is my favorite of the three books so far, although I have really loved the first two. The Lucy series is wonderful, and we should point out Lucy by the Sea, which is just out, is you don't need to read the first two to get Lucy by the Sea, but it helps. And she has such a very specific voice, Lucy, I mean, that follows through all three of the books. This is a character that I love, and her characters are so vivid. And what is amazing to me is she can make them so vivid without long descriptive paragraphs. She writes in short bursts. And as somebody who wrote for television, where you have to write very sparsely and get it all in in a minute 40, her little bursts of writing tell you so much. And then what they don't say tells you so much. She has a very particular style. She is, to me, a rock star in the field of writing. Uh, her books are wonderful. I remember learning about negative space from, you know, when I was in our history class from the Matisse cutouts. But by looking at the paper cutouts, you make just as much use of the negative space as you do of the positive space. She does that with the Lucy Barton books. I called it in the interview elliptical writing. The things she chooses to share with you is Lucy Barton and the things she chooses to hold to herself. And that's a big theme in Elizabeth Stroud's book is this, can you really ever know another person, whether you're married to them, whether they're your sister, your brother, your mother, your father, can you ever really know a person? And I think that's sort of fascinating. And you mentioned too that Lucy has idioms and I love that about her. I love that I can tell within a few pages that this is a Lucy Barton book just because she has little touches like uh, she says a lot is what I mean to say. And I really enjoy her voice. Olive Kittredge, in contrast, is a character that squawks like a goose and can come across as quite abrasive. And yet, when you hear about her as a teacher and you read about her interactions with the town, you realize that she really sees people. And she sees people you don't even think she sees. She's got, I hate to say this because it's so cliche, but she's got this huge heart that she doesn't expose to a lot of people. So I love Olive and Lucy. They're characters very close to my heart, and I'm thankful to Elizabeth for creating them. Well, it's interesting. Olive Kittredge and Lucy Barton are two very different people. And yet you understand them, you know them, you feel them in her writings. And she says in Lucy by the Sea, Lucy's a writer. And of course, you always think how much of this is autobiographical. But Lucy is a writer. And Lucy says, this is the question that has made me a writer. Always that deep desire to know what it feels like to be a different person. And then in O. William, a very similar line, trying to find out what it feels like to be another person. That's what she's trying. And that's what I think, as you'll hear in this conversation, that's what Elizabeth Strout does so well. 
she puts herself in that character and she knows the character and you know the character in a very, very specific way, which is a real gift for a writer. And that's why she has been shortlisted, I think, for the Booker Prize. That is about as prestigious a prize as you can get. She's already won the Pulitzer. I hope I, I'm rooting for her. I hope she wins the Booker Prize. Here's our conversation with Elizabeth Strout. Elizabeth Strout is so wonderful to welcome you to the bookcase. I want to start by asking you about your new book, Lucy by the Sea, because its plot is extremely topical. You start with COVID, you talk about racial injustice, the George Floyd murder, the January 6th riots. Had you always known there would be a third Lucy Barton novel, or was there no third Lucy Barton novel until the headline sort of required it? How did you decide that you wanted to see these current events through this character's eyes? First of all, it's lovely to be here. So thank you so much for having me, really. It's such a pleasure. I didn't plan on writing that book, but when the world turned upside down, as it did for everybody, I had just finished writing Oh, William. And so Lucy and William were still very much in my mind. And that's when I thought, oh, well, wait a minute, let's take this even further and stick them together on a house, you know, on a cliff on the rocky coastline of Maine. And it was a part of Maine that they hadn't seen during their previous trip. And so for me, what was fascinating, because I come from that area and I grew up there and it's as familiar to me as my own skin in a way. And yet what was so fascinating for me was to look at it through Lucy's eyes because she had never seen such a thing. And every single time I looked out at the water or something, I would think, okay, Lucy's eyes, Lucy's eyes. And it was really interesting to be able to do that. You say right at the beginning, like so many others, I did not see it coming. But William is a scientist. He saw it coming. He saw it sooner than I did. That's what I mean. It is uh, obviously COVID was the jumping off point to this. And then you decided to look at all the other events through Lucy's eyes. Right, exactly. Because, you know, I didn't know when I began to sketch out that book, none of us knew how long this was going to be or many of us, I mean, most of us, I should say, at least I didn't know how long we were in for. And so I just kept writing. I think one of the most interesting things for me in writing this book was trying to capture how the sense of time imploded. Like all of a sudden time was so different because what was a weekend? What was a week? What was a day? That was very, very interesting for me to try and get down on the page at the same time, making sure that there was a narrative thrust, you know, to move the book forward. And then things began to unfold through the country and in their lives. So I just stayed with it. Actually, I love so much of your pandemic writing. There's also a a passage where she finds out that flossing gets on William's nerves. And that's kind of how I felt. You can't go anywhere. And you're like, could you not floss? Could you not breathe? Please. (laughs) clean your ears with a q-tip i mean i didn't put that in there but it was like you know right it was like one of those things that you're just like so together unremittingly together that (laughs) she finally figures out i was also interested in that lucy says at one point she begins to think about this in terms of her life and she begins to think all of her life in some way has been a lockdown that's a that's a really interesting parallel. And I began to think about to what extent do those feelings that I had during COVID and lockdown and when I was listening to the 
siren after siren after siren going right. past my apartment right. in New York, uh, up the uh, FDR Drive, down to the hospitals. <laughs> and like Lucy's uh, daughter, I saw the refrigerator trucks outside right. the hospitals. And I, right. so I began to think, what are those feelings that I had during lockdown? How do those transpose to the rest of my life? And Lucy obviously thinks about this a lot. One of the things I love about all the Lucy Barton books is I think of them, I've sort of made up my own term, as sort of elliptical writing, right. which is like the negative space yeah. is almost as important. Like what she doesn't say yeah. is as important as yeah. what she does say. And what you don't see happening is as important as what you do. So my question is right. twofold. One, how do you know what to include and what not to? And how do you know when you're done with a scene? Because sometimes you literally cut it off in the middle right. of the scene and you and, right. and I kind of go, oh, wait, wait, what happened at the end there? Right. Well, you know, Lucy's voice is Lucy. And that's what I recognized when I wrote the first My Name is Lucy Barton book. I realized, like, I could hear her voice and it was like a fine gold thread that came down and I had to catch it and keep it perfectly. Her voice is who she is. And so if I could manage to stay with her voice, I could present Lucy. And then I also began to realize that it is elliptical. And I mean, I like that term. And I also realized that that for me is a good thing because it allows the reader space to enter the text with their own stories mm -hmm. and their own experiences. Because sometimes when you read a really dense book or text, there's a little bit of a wall between you and the writer. And this is not there because of the way it's written with a lot of breathing area is how I think of it, you know, so that the reader can breathe their own breaths into the story. That is just intuitive. I just, I can't tell you, I wish I could, but I can't. We talked a little bit before the interview started about how it's a theme in the Lucy Barton books. And she's always fascinated by the fact that you can't ever really know somebody else. You've written yeah. two novels under the mask of Olive Kittredge. You've written three novels under the mask of Lucy Barton. Do you know them? Well, that's interesting. I feel like I do. And yet I began to recognize a while back that I did have this recurring theme in my work which is how difficult it is to know another person. And my whole life, I've been interested in knowing what it feels like to be another person. And when I was really young, I realized that I would actually never know what it felt like to be another person, but that when I read a book, that was one way to be inside somebody else's head for a moment, and that was great. So that concept of knowing what it's like to be another person is something that you know I, I think is one of my themes. I do actually feel like I know Olive Kittredge and I do feel like I know Lucy Barton. Yeah, I do. It's interesting. They're very, very real to me. And then the question in my mind is, do you start with character? This is the question that's always made me a writer, Lucy says in Lucy by the Sea. Always that deep desire to know what it feels like to be a different person. So do you start with that character? Right. Anna Quinlan said, for instance, she starts with character. It's almost always women. And she knows the character of her husband. She knows what her basic ethos is. She knows uh, who her friends are, mm -hmm. etc. Do you start from that predicate? I think that I do start with the character because people are so endlessly interesting to me. And that's what I love about being alive. It's just how many different kinds of people there are. Wow. So I do think that I start with the character, but I don't know everything about the character at all when I begin. It's just like a presence that will come to me, or in Lucy's case, her voice. And then as I write, I discover. And it's an interesting thing because certain 
characters will present themselves to me and I'll work on them and there. And then I'll realize, Oh, I'm not actually getting able to know you. So <laughs> goodbye, you know, and they'll just sort of end up off the table. But others, it's so interesting, you know, like Pete Barton in Anything is Possible. It was so interesting how he just sort of sidled up next to me in his quiet Pete Barton way. So as you're finding that thread, does Lucy or Olive or Pete or any of them, do they do things that surprise you as you write? Absolutely. That all of a sudden it's leading you into a place you didn't expect to go. Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad when that happens, because if I'm not surprised, then you won't be surprised. You Hmm. see what I mean? So I'm thrilled when they surprise me. Lucy is a little bit, I have a very distinct voice for Olive in my head. It's kind of like, I always picture a sort of a goose that's honking. But but Lucy Lucy has, has a specific way of speaking, is what I mean to say. Um, She's got idioms. How did you go about finding those in Lucy's voice and using them? Because one of the things that I think can be a problem with idioms is when you're reading a writer and you're like, oh, God, I get it already. But you do a really nice job of giving just enough so that you're reminded of who Lucy is, but not too much so that you're like, oh, enough already. How did you go about doing that? And does your editor sometimes say, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it? (laughs) Um, No, my editor, bless his heart, has been wonderful. No, I am such a perfectionist that I just go over everything so many times as I work. And it's all for me in the ear. So even Olive, even if it's not Lucy Barton's voice, which is very much in my ear, even if it's a straight third person narrator, the sentences have to fall on the ear in a way that is can be received by the reader. So it's very, very ear-oriented for me, and I go over it and over it. And I think that helps with the idioms, you know, that you're speaking about. Well, John Irving said to me once that he spends the first three months of a book looking out the window and he thinks about his character and he thinks about the people who affected that character, how those people formed that character. He said in my own life, for instance, his own life, there are X number of people who changed his life, Mm -hmm. pushed it off in a totally different direction than he anticipated. And he said, when I write a book, I know who each one of those people are in my main protagonist's life. Right, right. Is there that moment when you're sort of sitting and thinking about, and then somebody pops into your head and they think, okay, what would they be? Yeah. Let me just say that's interesting that he spends the first three months looking out the window, because I get that. I spend at least half my writing time just sitting, (laughs) Hmm. looking out the window or just sitting, you know, and thinking, which used to spook out my college roommate she's she was lovely about it <laughs> we're very good friends her last name is actually crosby she let me use it for crosby mate uh, so we're you know but she was you know she used to be a little bit spooked out at first because i would just be sitting there thinking but anyway yeah so i do i just think about these people a lot even when i'm not actually writing something down and it's interesting how Different people like show up again in anything is possible. Those different people from her past just sort of like appeared, you know, like the janitor. And I thought, oh, wow, what a, what a great view he would have had for Lucy. So they come, I don't know how they come, but they somehow verbal up 
I'm interested because the two Olive books in some ways are short stories about this town, about this community, and some of them are published in different publications and then you sew them together. How do you sew them together? Like, how do you say, okay, now I've got an arc. Now I know I've got a starting point and I've got an end point and I know how I want these stories to be laid out because they're not necessarily chronological in any way. No. Here's something that was so interesting to me. With the first Olive Kittredge book, I went and I rented a cottage in Provincetown, Massachusetts, right on the beach, because the book was due and I had to get that book done. So I spent the summer in this cottage on this beach working all day long because, you know, I was younger and I could do that. And what I noticed was when I packed up the stories to take them back to New York, they were in exactly the order that they were for the book. Hmm. And I thought that is so interesting because it meant to me that my subconscious knew what it was doing because Hmm. I wasn't consciously thinking this will be the beginning or this will be the end, but there they were. And um, like, I knew the end, I had written the last paragraph of that book way before I had written most of the book, Really, just the last paragraph. And I had scrawled on the top of the page, end question mark. And then when I wrote that story, I thought, wait a minute, I got the end. Where is it? Where? And I found it, thank goodness, because I'm such a, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty slobby with my work. I mean, I'm just unorganized. Sort of thing. But it was there. So I don't know how these things happen, but I just trust in some sort of intuitive thing that it's happening. That's all I can say. It's not very interesting, but it is just intuitive for me. In the later novels, the Lucy novels, where I say, Katie uses the term uh, elliptical paragraph, or these short bursts that you write, that sort of self-contained little sections, or what I consider minute 40s or two minutes in, in television terms. Do you write those in order, or do you just simply think, oh, this would be an interesting little moment, write it and stick it in here? That's a very good question, and I don't write those in order either. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't realize that until just now when you asked me. So, no, there will be a little hiccup on the page. (laughs) And I will stick it, you know, I'll just stick it in the corner of the table. And then I'll realize, oh, hiccup, come on, come on. You know, here we go. Yeah. With Lucy, I think I did write a little bit more from beginning to end, but not really. No, I mean, there were still always those scenes that would just arrive and then I would find the space for them. And I don't know if you would accept the characterization, but one of the things that I find unique about your writing is that I always feel you're talking to me. It's a very individual communication that I feel. And personal, I think. Personal. Yes, exactly. I'm glad to hear that because I always write for a reader. And I have made up an ideal reader who has no gender but is there. And I can sense this reader. And I write for this reader all the time. And the reader is patient, but not too patient, sort of understanding, but not tremendously understanding, but, you know, open to me if I do my job right. So I have a sense of responsibility to this reader all the time. And I have a sense of like saying, okay, just hold my hand and we're going to go down this path and, you know, you will be safe. I have to make the reader feel safe, even if we're discussing something that doesn't feel safe. So that's my responsibility to the reader. And it's a huge part of my writing process. And that reader is with me all the time. So it's almost like we're doing a dance. One of the writers that Kate and I so admire, and we were blessed to have him on the podcast, Niall Williams, who wrote a wonderful book called This is Happiness. And he said to us, it is a writer's gift 
to know how far you can take that writer and meander off the subject and bring them back. He said, you can't teach that. That's innate. But that is critical to know just how far the reader will go with you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's just so well put because it's a sense that I have to constantly be aware of. What does my reader need now? Or if I don't give this to the reader, what can I give them so that they'll stay with me? There are lots of different kinds of motherhood in your books. They're on opposite yeah. ends of the spectrum are Lucy's mother and Lucy, but somewhere in there is also Olive. And I hate to do how much of your character is in, because it is yeah. a cliche question, but is that sort of how you work? Because you have one devastating passage in Lucy by the Sea where you talk about, thank God we don't know the last time we pick up our children because we'd never put them down. And I know. Thank you for noticing that. Because when I wrote that, I thought, oh, oh, it just gave me, thank you. I'm so glad you noticed that. Oh God. It was, yeah. And you probably say something awful the last time you do it. Like you're getting way too heavy. I know. I know. Like, (laughs) come on, honey, (laughs) you're getting too big for this. Oh, and then, I mean, is that how you work it. out some of your feelings about motherhood? Because you are a mother. I am a mother and I adore my, I have one daughter and I adore her just pathologically, I think. You know, I just <laughs> completely just love her so much. And it did occur to me at some point years ago that I didn't know the last time I picked her up. And then I all of a sudden remembered that with Lucy and I thought, okay, bingo, put that in there. Zarina talked a little bit about the fact that it took you a while. Yours was not no. a flash in the pan success story. No, you, not at all. You worked, worked at your craft worked. and worked at your craft and worked at your craft. But apparently at one point she said to you, mom, enough already. Like, yeah. you know, do something else. And you said, I can't. Writing is just in me. And that seems to be a theme that comes up in our shows. Is writing just in you? Did you always know? Yeah, I always knew from my earliest memory of myself as a person, as a child, I understood that I was a writer. And then when I had so much trouble getting anybody else to understand that (laughs) for many years, (laughs) I was like a little bit surprised. I thought, you know, I remember Raymond Carver said, what did he do? He said he was long past the point where it made sense to continue to write before he was able to. And I did the math and I thought, oh, wow, well, I'm way past him. (laughs) So, you know, it was a little daunting to realize why, why isn't this happening? But then every time I got a rejection, I just somehow knew it wasn't quite good enough yet. And that if I kept going, I would be able to do it. And so, Writing Amy and Isabel was, in my mind, it was like learning to ride a bicycle. I was finally able Mm. to pedal that bicycle. And I understood that as I was writing and I thought, oh, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And you knew it when you submitted it. When you submitted it, you're like, I think I finally submitted something that's good enough. Well, I couldn't find an agent for two years. That book was done and I couldn't find an agent when Dan Meneker, who had been at the New Yorker and had been rejecting my stories, but nicely each more nicely, nicer, nicer each time, <laughs> you know, he had moved over to Random House. And so he looked at it and he loved it. And that was the end of that or the beginning of that. But yeah, it was pretty depressing when I had that finished and I couldn't find anybody to be interested in. Do you feel that Lucy is done or is it possible that Lucy and maybe Olive would come back? 
I really just don't know. You know, I didn't know that I was going to write Olive again, and I didn't know that I was going to write Lucy by the Sea, so I'm not sure. I don't dare say anything (laughs) at this point. Well, I I, I felt when I finished O. William that there's more to come. Oh, well, you were right. <laughs> even if even if you didn't know it. Well, I you thought, did. There is, you are. <laughs> this is an invitation to further know Lucy. In this book, in Lucy by the Sea, you have that wonderful line. I've got the book in front of me. I should, I should read it. But you have that wonderful line about William and Lucy together. And I stood there holding on to this man as though he were the last, very last person left on this sweet, sad place that we call Earth. And I thought, boy, there's a a lovely coda for what has been a very touching three books. Elizabeth Strout, this has been a wonderful chance to talk to you. Katie and I, when we started this, thought it'll be so interesting to talk to writers about their work. But what it has become, in my mind, is a masterclass on writing, that there is no cookie-cutter approach to writing a novel. Everybody approaches it so differently. But those who do it well, my goodness gracious, what a treat it is for people to be able to read what they've done. This is a wonderful book, Lucy by the Sea. I must say, I, you, you don't ever ask somebody a favorite. But of the three, this is my favorite. Oh, I'm so glad. That's good to hear. I'm glad. And can, by the way, and congratulations as well as we talk. You are on the long list for the Booker Prize. Well deserved. And uh, I don't know if those kinds of things mean a lot to you personally, but... I think it's wonderful recognition. So good to talk to you. Thank you very much. It's lovely to talk to both of you, and thank you so much. It's really been just wonderful. Thank you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The Rapid Fire with Elizabeth Strout. Lesser known book you recommend? Anything by William Trevor. I don't know if he's lesser known, though, so that might not be a good one because, but I think anything that William Trevor wrote is absolutely wonderful. And he wrote a lot of things. Then you you may have answered my next question, which is an author you will read simply because that author wrote it. Yeah, William Trevor, I would read anything. And he wrote so much that I keep rereading. You know, I still have two collections of his stories by my bed, and every night I read one of them, and I sometimes remember it, and other times it's like, I don't. They're wonderful. He's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. If you've never read William Trevor before, where would you start? I would start with his stories, his collected stories. Favorite book to read to your daughter? When she was young. Well, this sounds so pretentious, but I was reading War and Peace when she was about (laughs) seven or eight years old. I'm sorry, maybe I shouldn't say this, but (laughs) I was reading War and Peace and we were on a vacation and one of my former husband's cousins said, I can't believe you're sitting at the pool reading that. Why can't you put a paper bag around it? And I thought, oh, I guess I'm in the wrong company. But anyway, so I was reading War and Peace (laughs) and Zarina was so interested in everything that I reported to her about that book. 
she just couldn't wait to hear what I had read that day. And she just adored the fact that, I can't remember his name, the, not, not the prince, but um, the guy, who, the main character there. Okay. Oh, never mind. Chances so are never it's Nikolai started this. or Alexander. It's the, you're, you're, yeah. you're generally your choice. Well, anyway, Nikolai or Alexander. He, um, he made friends with the lice in prison, and she was so delighted by that. And so she read the book as soon as she could, which was probably about 12 years old. <laughs> Am I right? Am I wrong in thinking that, did I read that your first book was an Updike yes. novel? Yes. My first book that I read was Pigeon Feathers. Short stories, I think, by John Updike. And I read it because it was sitting on the coffee table. And we didn't have a lot of children's books around. My mother wasn't particularly interested in children's books. And so I read Pigeon Feathers at a very, very young age. And I just remember thinking, hmm, (laughs) there's a lot going on that's not with the kids. Right. It doesn't seem to pay to be a kid, is what I thought to myself. <laughs> well, well, then you may have answered my next question, which is the most influential book in your life. Uh, probably, again, the stories of Alice Monroe. I, I don't mean again, but Alice Monroe's stories were, I learned so much from her work. Do you read your reviews? No. Why not? No. I just, again, it's my intuition. And I thought right off with Amy and Isabel, I thought, let's see if we can not read these. And it was very easy not to read them. Hmm. And I just understood myself enough to know, you know, I'm easily excitable. (laughs) And I thought, we're just not going to do that. So, If I were not a writer, I would be... A doctor. (laughs) Uh, Except I, I couldn't be because I wouldn't be able to get into medical school. But I would love to be a doctor. I would just love to be a doctor. Yeah, I think that all medical stuff fascinates me. And, you know, the fact we do live in these bodies and to be able to help somebody with their body. I love it. I would love that. We, we stole this last question from Stephen Colbert, but we always think it's really insightful. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Peaceful. Hopeful. Hmm. Graceful. Um, truthful and thankful. Oh, lovely. Thank you ever so much. So, Kate, what did you think of that conversation with Elizabeth? Ah, I love that. It's like, da-da-da-da-da-da, give us your monologue on what you thought. Okay, I will. I love her writing. I think one of the things I like most about her writing is she writes very sparingly. The words she chooses are very careful. Uh, She doesn't overwrite anything. I really appreciate that. When you talked before about inhabiting different characters, I get the sense that she sort of gets a kick out of that. Her books are often, like I heard her say in the interview, I I didn't think I was done with that character, so I did this. So it seems to me that she's surprised sometimes by her own choices. She said that a couple of times. I can't tell you how it works. It just sort of works. And I love that. I also really just, my favorite passage in in the book is the one that we talked about, about you never know the last time you pick up your child. And if you did know, it would drive you crazy. And it got me thinking about how many lasts, you know, every time my son buries himself in the crook of my arm at story time, I think, when are you going to push my arm away and say, no, I'm okay over here? I'm constantly awaiting those 
those moments. She captures motherhood beautifully in this book. And I also loved the way Lucy experiences current events, that we got Lucy's lens on current events. I thought that was really important in this book. That's very important in this book. You know, we talked to her about whether she would have written it had not current events taken off and be so much in the public mind. Starts with COVID, and COVID is such a major part of it. But there's also George Floyd. There's also uh, climate change. There's also the political divisions of this country. William says to her at, at one point, this country is in so much trouble, Lucy. The whole world is like it's some seizure taking place around the world. I just don't know how long democracy can work. It's bringing current events into Lucy Barton's life. And that makes, I think, for a very interesting, an interesting novel. What's fascinating to me about Lucy Barton, she's kind of a nebbish. You know, the world sort of reacts on her. She's not a forceful character. Mm -hmm. William is a much more forceful character, her ex-husband, than she is. In Oh, William, one of my favorite lines that I think describes Lucy so well. If there was a big cork board, and on that board was a pin for every person who ever lived, there would be no pin for me. It's sort of plaintive. But Lucy, while she's kind of a nebbish, is somebody that you really, I, I really like and am fascinated by and think she's very true to her character through all three books. I think so, too. And I think you're right that Lucy is a bit more reactive rather than proactive. And I think that's really interesting. I hate to say I've gotten used to COVID. I haven't gotten used to COVID, but I've sort of assimilated to it. So to go back to those original images of refrigerator trucks in the New York City streets really reminded me about how horrible those years was. And I was thankful to see that through Lucy's eyes. And I was also, one of the running themes in the Lucy Barton books is Lucy struggling to deal with her childhood that was so poor. I mean, she was so poor. And she talks about the lockdown as poverty being a lockdown, that in some ways she was locked down for her entire childhood. She didn't go to the movies. She didn't have a TV. She didn't go to restaurants. She didn't interact in public. She was poor. And her whole world was that house and her family. And so I thought it was interesting when she was reflecting on COVID that she talked about poverty as a lockdown. That was a new way of thinking about that for me. We're all in lockdown all the time. We just don't know it. That's all. One of the lines from Lucy by the Sea. This is a wonderful book. The whole Lucy Barton mm. series is wonderful, and I, I couldn't recommend it more highly to people. Our conversation with the fabulous Elizabeth Strout. Our bookstore conversation is with Tattered Cover. Tattered Cover has a series of bookstores in Colorado, and we speak with Jeremy Patlin. Jeremy, people think about bookstores as being sort of individual one-off stores in the middle of a community. And yet you've got Denver blanketed. How many stores? We have eight total. We did start as one of those really small community bookstores in the Cherry Creek neighborhood. And then as buildings and other bookstores around us became available, as I understand the history, we were able to take those spaces over and became what we were really known for as the huge tattered covered bookstore in Cherry Creek. And then from there, we expanded to other sections of our community, always looking for sections of the city that needed a bookstore. We had to relocate our Lodo store to a different part of lower downtown at McGregor Square, right next to the ball field. And it's amazing what a, a move of four blocks can make from a customer base and from a business point of view. We also opened up our first a, a newer concept for us, a kids bookstore at the Stanley Marketplace. So it's all kids books and it's a lot of fun to be there. 
So what are your favorite books of the summer? What has gotten you really excited? What are you putting in the most customers' hands when you can? From a store point of view, from this summer in general, we had a huge release a couple weeks ago by Kali Fajardo Anstein, a Colorado author named Woman of Light. We sold a lot of her books. Blake Crouch is another Colorado author. It's interesting. I'm less good at the specific titles than my teens. So let's start with your personal favorites then. Let's start with your staff racks. What do you recommend? Well, so my favorite book of all time was Patti Smith's Just Kids. That book changed my life. Of more recent books and the ones that are coming out later in the fall, we have Matthew Quick's new book coming out, We Are the Light, which I found to be really uplifting and beautiful. Difficult, but absolutely beautiful. And then I loved Less is Lost. And that's coming out, I believe, in September as well. I was interested when Kate asked about what you recommend. You The first thing you talked about was two Colorado authors. And it's an interesting approach, it seems to me, that a buyer has to have. The simple way, you could just follow the New York Times bestseller list or the best books on whatever that thing is that sells online. Or... You can be very specific and curate your collection. How do you balance those two? So Colorado and Denver has a really vibrant writers community. And again, one of the things I realized when I moved to Colorado was like this is a, a, a geographic place that really likes itself and takes pride in itself. Denver's a city that we go to the polls and we vote, and most people are they know about local issues. When new Colorado topics come out in books, we sell it. It's part of the community. We only have approximately 5 million people in the entire state and about 3.5 million, I believe, are in the Denver Denver metro area. So it's pretty localized. And so Colorado themes, Western themes, sell really, really well for us, um, both in fiction and nonfiction. We have books about water and and land conservation. Those are big sellers for us. Same with Western and Colorado history and Native American and Indigenous stories and histories. Our customer wants that, you know, on top of the New York Times. Jeremy Padlin, the chief buyer for Tattered Cover Bookstores in Denver, Colorado. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jeremy Patlin from the Tattered Cover Bookstores in Denver, Colorado, and all around Denver, Colorado. Next week, we're going to be talking to Richard Osmond. He has written the Thursday Murder Club books. They're all fun. They're just fun. And I think you'll enjoy hearing from him. As always, the folks who made this program possible. And then a little coda, a little sign-off from Elizabeth Strout. The Book Case is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shortavian. You know what? Good luck. <laughs> for everybody. I love it. <laughs>